Good evening and welcome. Glad you could all be here tonight as we continue our study through the book of Revelation. I invite you please to take your Bibles if you have them and uh, turn to Revelation chapter 20. We're here. We made it. Revelation chapter 20. We spent 19 chapters talking about this book and we got to the part where this is what everyone wants to know, right? The millennium. Let's talk about the millennium. But Revelation chapter 20. Um, as I've been sort of going over this lesson and, and working on it this week, um, even though your handout says we're going to read verses 1 through 10, I've only been able to get through verses 1 through 3. So, uh, let's see if we can um, break my record. But I'll read the whole passage, and then we'll, cons- uh, we'll have it before our hearts and minds for our consideration. So, Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones... And they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with Him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose numbers as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So there's the famous millennium passage. Um, Just so you know, there's been so much talk about the uh, the millennium, I should say, in the history of the church, that uh, so much division on this, so many... Uh, you know, just so much back and forth on this. Um, you have an extra handout that has, gives you four views of the millennium. But all this division, all this debate, discussion, however you want to put it, is based on a passage in which this phrase, the thousand years, occurs only once in the entire Bible in these ten verses. Now, it's, you hear the phrase six times, But it's only in this one passage. Yet, the fact that it's this one passage has has caused so much debate, so much division in the church on millennial views. I remember growing up, uh, just as a point of uh, full disclosure, I grew up as a dispensational premillennialist. And as I was growing up, and when I came to Christ later in life, and and church I, I went to uh, taught this. I thought this was the only way to believe in the end times. I did not know there were other ways to interpret the millennium, except that those who taught the pre-mil, uh, dispensational pre-mill view that I held said that those other views were heretical because they're not biblical. Well, I'm going to put that to rest because while we have four views of the millennium and though they differ and though they, they, there's, they don't really have a ton of overlap there's some overlap but not a ton we have to understand that this has again been a hotly debated topic and we need to take it with a, a lot of humility and, and a lot of charity we need to have charity for our brothers and sisters in Christ who hold a different view on this and we need to be humble in the sense of recognizing that our own view could be wrong. I changed 
I am no longer a dispensational premillennialist. I am now an amillennialist, just again, full disclosure. So, humility and charity, but I just say that as words of introduction. Uh, we're going to go through a brief recap here of what we saw last time, three weeks ago. Uh, last week, Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21, we see here the return of Christ. Okay? This is the sixth of the seven cycles in Revelation chapter 4 through chapter 20. And in this one, we see the return of Christ in its most detail. This is the most detail you get in the book of Revelation on the return of Christ. And again, I'm going to continue to make the argument that we are seeing uh, Revelation chapter 4 through Revelation chapter 20 as a set of seven cycles that re recapitulate and sort of retell this, the, the end, if you will, of this age from different perspectives. They're all viewpoints on the church age from the time of the resurrection and ascension of Christ to the time of His return and glory at the end of the age, these seven cycles all look at that period of time from different perspectives, with different focuses. So this sixth of seven cycles looks at this period of time, but focuses way at the end. And it, and it sort of expands and sort of zooms in, if you will, on the return of Christ. So even though the return of Christ is hinted at in other of these cycles, it is really focused on here. He's going to come in glory. He's going to come with an army. He's going to come and He's going to speak a word and He's going to decimate His foes. And He's going to come and He's going to take our enemies and cast them into the lake of fire. That is our God. That is our Messiah. That is our Savior. No more of this Jesus meek and mild. He is now Jesus, the conquering Messiah. But as we're going to see in a moment here, Revelation chapter 19 has a pivotal role to play in how you interpret Revelation chapter 20, which talks about the millennium. And the word millennium is just right out of the Latin. If you have a Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 20, it talks about the mille annum, the millennium, the thousand years. So your view on chapter 19 has a large role to play in how you interpret chapter 20, as we're about to see in just a moment. But that is our recap for Revelation chapter 19. And before we get into the passage on the millennium, I really want to focus on the different views. Now your handout says three or four views, because if you notice on the extra handout that I gave you, the first two are both premillennial views. But they're different. So really you have, in a sense, three general views in the millennium. You have the premillennial view, you have the postmillennial view, and then you have the ah-millennial view. It's just that the premillennial view has two flavors. Now, to throw a monkey wrench into it, there are really only two flavors of millennial views. Because what the ah-millennial view and the post-millennial view share in common is that they're both technically post-millennial views. And these, these prefixes, pre, post, ah, they all talk about when does Jesus return in regards to the millennium. Does Jesus return before the millennium? Premillennial. Does Jesus return after the millennium? Postmillennial. So all of these different views are all surrounding around when does Jesus return in relation to the millennium. And the reason why I say ah millennialism is really a flavor of postmillennialism is because, and I'm going to kind of spill the beans here a little bit, the amillennial view believes the millennium is now. So when Jesus returns, it's going to be at the end of the millennium. But we'll get to that a little more when we get to that view. I want to start with the first one here. So take your second handout. 
and let us look at these millennial views because I want us to have at least a working understanding of these four millennial views as we go through this passage. Because we're going to look at the passage, we're going to just, you know, we're going to examine the text like we always do, going verse by verse, but I'll probably at times take out certain bits in these passages that are contested between these views. Like one example is in verse 3, uh, or sorry, verse 2, the binding of Satan. What does that mean? What does the binding of Satan mean? Well, that's going to depend largely on your millennial view. Because each millennial view has a different understanding of what it means that Satan is bound. So, as we get through those portions in the text, I will try to be, uh, make sure that we you know, see how the different millennial views describe these things and interpret these things. And I will, of course, try to impress upon you why I believe my view is right. Again, being humble and charitable to the other views as much as I possibly can. Okay. So of the first of the four millennial views you have there on your handout is called the historic premillennial view. And the reason it's called historic is to uh, distinguish it from the dispensational view, which is number two. The dispensational view is a, in the history of the church at least, you know, in relation to the history of the church, it's a new view. Now by new, I don't mean it came out last week. It's been around with us for uh, going on 200 years now, right? I think it came out mid-19th century or near the end of the 19th century. It was certainly in the 1800s. So it, you're, you're at least 150, maybe close to 200 years that this view has been around. Now, obviously, I mean, it started way before any of us were born. But in the history of the church, it is new. Because the historic premillennial view can be traced back to some of the writings of the early church fathers in the first three centuries. So it's, a, it's historic in that sense, as opposed to dispensationalism. Now, the historic premillennial view there, according to your handout and the diagram you've got there, on the far left-hand corner of that little dotted line, which is the, the line of redemptive history, you've got church age slash tribulation. Now, in all of these diagrams, church age is what we've been talking about all this time, what we've been calling the church age. It is the period of time in which we are currently in. It is the period of time that is uh, marked as being between the first and second advent of Christ. So it is, it is the period of time between the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension of Christ on the one hand, and then the return of Christ at the end of the age on the other. That is the church age. And by saying slash tribulation, it's meant to indicate that the great tribulation that the Bible talks about, that Jesus talks about in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, the great tribulation comes at the end of that. But it's important to note that in a historic premillennial view, the church goes through the Great Tribulation. Because the dispensational view says it doesn't. We'll get to that in a moment. So you've got the church age, tribulation. Then at the end of the church age, at some point in the future, we don't know when. Why don't we know when? Because no one knows the day or the hour of Christ's return. Christ will return in the air. Believers, the resurrection, the physical resurrection of dead believers and the transformation of living believers into glorified bodies will occur and they will ascend to be caught up with Christ and then immediately return back down to earth, Christ leading them into earth. That's what you get, Revelation 19, Christ coming on his white horse with the armies of heaven behind him, the church triumphant behind him, returning to the earth. So Christ returns before, pre, the millennium. 
Now you might be thinking, why does Christ, why do the believers go up and then immediately come back down? It seems kind of, why don't they just stay here and let Christ come down? Well, there, there's, it's not as crazy as you think. Because this is sort of following from and flowing out of first century marriage traditions. And you see this in Jesus' parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. The way it works is this. The uh, bride, when he was ready to consummate his marriage, remember Jewish marriages, ancient marriages had three stages. There was the, um, the betrothal, there was the engagement period, and then there was the consummation. So in that, between the betrothal and the consummation, they are for all intents and purposes married, but uh, it, the, the marriage isn't fully consummated until the bridegroom comes to retrieve his bride. So, the bridegroom would come to the city of the bride, and as he's coming, the sort of the bride and her bridesmaids would go out to receive the bridegroom and welcome him back into the city. So they go out, and then they come right back in. And that's what you see here. The bridegroom, Christ, comes to retrieve his bride, the church. The bride comes out to meet the bridegroom, and they immediately come right back in and then usher in the millennial period. So this return of Christ here that you see on the diagram is Revelation 19 in their view. And I will say this at the outset. I think that the ordering in the Bible of Revelation 19 followed by Revelation 20 is, in my opinion, one of the strongest arguments for the premillennial view. Now, just because I think it's the strongest argument doesn't mean I think it's a good argument because that, I think, fails to understand what's going on in, in Revelation, but I'm just going to leave it at that. Revelation 19 is a strong argument that, this, that the Christ returns pre the millennium because you've got the return of Christ right before the, the chapter on the millennium. Now, so they enter into the millennium. Now, remember, in Revelation 19, right, uh, Christ defeats all of our enemies, and they're all cast into the lake of fire. So you've got this period of time now, the millennium. Now, in historic premillennialism, uh, it, it's most likely a, a literal thousand-year period, though there might be some who see it as just a figurative for a long period of time, a long but determined, definite period of time. I'm not sure, but... We'll just say it's a thousand years, a literal thousand years. During this period of time, you'll have Christ reigning physically on earth with believers physically on earth. This period of the millennium will be a period of golden age. Much, uh, much of what you see in the Old Testament prophecies will come true in the millennial period. And then at the end of that millennial period, you will have a brief uh, rebellion. That's Satan's little season. Uh, verse 3, but after these things he must be released for a little while, Satan. And then you have the resurrection of the believers, or sorry, of the unbelievers, the final judgment, and then the renewed earth, the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth. Now, a couple of things to note on this view. You have two resurrections separated by the thousand years. Now, here's a strong argument against premillennialism. The Bible doesn't talk about two resurrections separated by a thousand years. John chapter 5 talks about an hour is coming when those who are in their graves will hear the voice of the Son of God and they will all come forth. Some will go on to everlasting life and some will go on to condemnation. Revelation, or sorry, Matthew chapter 25 in the the uh, sheep and goats judgment there. You have uh, all the sheep and the goats come before the Lord and those on his left hand go into everlasting fire. Those on his right hand go into the kingdom. So this idea of, a, of two resurrections separated by a thousand seven years is a strong argument, in my opinion, against the premillennial view. But there you have it. That's classic pre uh, classic or historic premillennialism. 
Second, dispensational premillennialism. This is what I came out of. Um, and if you've read the Left Behind series, that's this view. Uh, if you listen to people like John MacArthur or David Jeremiah or pick a popular non-reformed Bible teacher on the radio or on the internet. They will, they will more than likely be dispensational premillennial. Now, just some differences. Okay, the similarities, first and foremost. The similarities are that, again, Christ returns before the, the millennium. Another similarity is that you've got this resurrection of believers, resurrection of unbelievers, separated not by a thousand years, but by a thousand seven years, but two separate re- uh, resurrections. Now, and you've also got a rapture, believers being caught up and then believers being coming down, but again, separated by seven years. Differences. Notice where you see tribulation separated out from the church age. According to the dispensational point of view, the church does not go through the great tribulation. They are raptured out of the great tribulation. The tribulation is for the Jews. It is for the Jews. It is time, it's the time of Jacob's distress. It is the time in which God returns to his program with the Jews. The, the dispensational point of view, in my opinion, and I think this is warranted based on the Scriptures, has a, a what I would consider a wrong view on the people of God. It sees the people of God as two distinct groups. The Jewish people and the church. Now, to be sure, they don't deny this, that there were some Gentiles that came into the nation of Israel, and there are some Jews that come into the church. But for the most part, they are two separate entities in this paradigm. And God deals with them in two separate programs, if you will. He was dealing with Israel, the nation of Israel, up until the time of Messiah. When Messiah was rejected by Israel, Israel was set aside. And God then says, okay, we're going to work on the church. So the church age is really sort of a parenthesis, an aside, a side note, if you will, on God's deliberations and dealings with Israel. So they do not go through the Great Tribulation. That is reserved for the Jewish people. So the church is raptured out. So there you have it. Resurrection of believers. Believers go up to be, they're caught up to be with Christ. And then they stay in heaven with them for seven years. And that's when all of chapter 19 occurs. You've got the great uh, wedding feast of the, of the Lamb, the supper of the Lamb, and then Christ will return after that period of time, that seven years. During that seven-year period is great tribulation. This seven-year period, according to the dispensational model, is that sort of missing 70th week of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, if you remember when we looked at that, the 70 weeks. So in this period of time, God is working on the Jews. He is converting the Jews. This is where Romans chapter 11, uh, where all Israel will be saved, comes to fruition here. You have the 144,000 literal Jewish evangelists who are sealed and set apart for the work of evangelizing during this period of time. And there will be great fruit, but also great judgment as during this period of time, the seals are open, the trumpets are blown, the bowls are poured out, God sends His judgment upon the earth. And then at the end of that period of time, at the end of the tribulation, and most dispensational people are post-trib, pre-millennial. In other words, Christ returns after the trib, before the, millennial, uh, before the millennium. So Christ returns... The, uh, the white horse return in Revelation 19. The enemies are destroyed. And then you have the millennium. Now again, in this millennium, again, it's, it is a, a literal reigning and ruling of Christ here on earth in Israel from the throne of David. You have, re, uh, you have glorified believers reigning and ruling with them. But you also have unglorified believers those people who came to faith during the tribulation enter into this kingdom period too, or this millennium period too, and they will have children, 
And those children will form the, the, the rebellion that you'll see at the end in verses 7 through 10, Satan's little season. But again, just like in the previous view, the millennium is the period of time in which all of the prophecies about Israel in the Old Testament are literally fulfilled in the millennium. Then at the end of the millennium, Christ will have the you'll have the resurrection of unbelievers as you have that final final a second final battle, right? But we have to you know while there are two resurrections, there are also two final battles, and the dispensational view actually has two returns of Christ. He returns to rapture the church, and then he returns to set up the millennium. But you have the resurrection of unbelievers, the final judgment, the new heavens, and the new earth, just like in the previous view. So that is the pre-millennial view, dispensational pre-millennial view. Now, flip it over. View number three, post-millennialism. Now you notice that the, the two pre-mill views... There's a lot of stuff going on there. When you flip it over on the back side, there's hardly anything going on here. <laughs> All right? Now, again, remember I told you the ah mill and the post mill are related. They're cousins, right? They're like, they're like people named Greece in the town of Sutton. Okay? They're, they're, they're maybe distantly related, but they're related. Same thing here. These two views are related. Now, in the post-millennial view that you have here, again, Christ returns post, after the millennium. And what you have here is the church age. Again, the same period of time between the ascension and re glorious return of Christ, this period of time that we're in now. The church age is chugging along. And then at some point in the future, at some point that we don't know yet, we may be in it now. We don't know. Probably not. But at some point in the future, we will enter into this millennial period. What's the millennial period? It is a period of time in which the world uh, becomes more Christianized. As the gospel goes forth in power, people are converted to the church. Uh, the church has a strong influence in the world. The church, in a sense, almost Christianizes the world. The world is sort of, in a sense, transformed through the proclamation of the gospel. As people come to the church, there'll be great revival, and there'll be um, justice will reign, evil will be curtailed greatly, um, true equity, justice. Righteousness, there will be a high degree of righteousness in the world. It will be a golden age. Now, post-millennials don't like that phrase, but I have no other way to describe it. It is a great, wonderful, victorious period of time. Golden age. Here on earth. So it happens at some point. Now, they look at Revelation 19... And they don't see, at least I should, let me rephrase that. Some don't see, I don't know how many, not all hold this view, but some will say what you see, and maybe most will say, I can be corrected, and I'll stand to be corrected if, I, if anyone hears this and wants to correct me, that Revelation 19 is not the return of Christ for the final battle at the end of the age. That occurs in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. What you have in Revelation 19 is Christ coming spiritually through the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel goes forth. The word of God, the sword that proceeds from the mouth of, the, of Jesus, goes forth, and it's, it's slaying the enemies in the sense of converting them. The Word of God is often described as the sword. You know, the Word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword that goes forth. And they are converted. Mass converted. Lots of people. Great revival. Again, the church becomes a strong influence in this world. And evil is curtailed, as we will see in a moment when we actually start looking at the passage, through the binding of Satan. 
the binding of Satan uh, leads to this uh, great period of, of revival, this great transformation of culture. Every aspect of our culture is, is in a sense, transformed through the gospel as the church grows in influence. And at the end of the millennium, Christ returns, physically this time, at the end of the millennium, post-millennium. He returns, and here, instead of two resurrections, you have the one resurrection, the general resurrection of unbelievers and believers. Then final judgment, the great white throne, or the sheep and goat judgment. And then you have the new heavens and the new earth. Now, there's a lot to commend, in my opinion, of the post-millennial view. First, it has a strong view of the power of the gospel going forth, and we should all have a strong view of the power of the gospel going forth. I do believe that uh, the millennium is uh, you know, a period here on earth. Uh, I do believe Christ returns at the end of that period. And I do believe that at, that, at the, return of that, uh, of the return of Christ at the end of the millennium, you have all those things that are sort of what we call concomitant or that occur at the same time at Christ's return. The general resurrection, the final judgment, and the new heavens and the new earth. The premillennial views, both of them, sort of split up the return of Christ. Dispensational shows us two returns. Both premill views show us two resurrections, two final battles, Here you have one final battle, one general resurrection, one final judgment, and the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth. What I don't like about post-millennialism, at least this form of it, is the fact that during this period of time, this period of time is the last days. We were in the last days ever since Christ came and began his ministry. Um, Keep your place here in Revelation 20 and look at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And here you have, this is after um, his temptation. And he begins his ministry. Jesus begins his ministry by saying in verse 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is now. We are in the kingdom period now because Jesus the king came. Jesus the king came and at his ascension into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He is coronated. He is enthroned. He is reigning and ruling now. So this entire period of time is the last days. We are already in an eschatologized period of time. And the post-millennial view focuses all that eschatologized period of time at some point in the future. And it de-eschatologizes the church age leading up to the millennium. I don't know if that makes sense. But anyway, we need to see this entire period uh, as the last days. And I think the post-mills will kind of say yes to that, but their view kind of says no to that. Because the millennium is something in the future. And really, that's something post-millennialism shares with the other two views. For them, the millennium is something in the future. Whether Jesus returns before it or after it. The millennium is something in the future. It is something in which happens here on earth physically. So now let us go to the ah-millennial view. Now... Anyone who's ever taught the amillennial view will tell you this. The name amillennialism is a bad name. It's, it's, it's a horrible name because it really misconstrues our view. Because when you see 
the letter A as a prefix to anything, it means to negate it. So in other words, it's like to say, this is the view that says there is no millennium. And this is what some less than honest critics of amillennialism, particularly in the dispensational camp, will say about those who hold to an amillennial point of view. So, well, they deny the millennium at all. But look, it's right here in the Bible. How can they deny what is clearly in the Bible? Thus, they're wrong and they're heretics. No, we do not believe that there is no millennium. We believe that we're in the millennium now. That's why you look at the church age there on the line. It says Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6 is now. We are now in the millennium. The millennium began when Jesus Christ came and was ascended to heaven and seated at his right hand, at the right hand of the Father. This has been the millennium. We are in the kingdom page. It is an age in which we see the kingdom going forth, the gospel is going forth, the church is growing, the, the nations are being converted. We'll see this in a moment. And the gospel goes forth in great, great power. Just like the post-millennial view. Where we differ is that we don't see the millennium as a golden age. The post-millennial view, in my opinion, is taking stuff from the eternal state and bringing it into the millennium era. And that's what the other, three view, the other two views do as well. They see the millennium in a way in which we see it as really what happens in the eternal state. All the prophecies of the Old Testament are fulfilled in the eternal state. So we are in the church age now. We are in the millennium now. And at some point in the future, we don't know when, why? Because no one knows the day or the hour. At some point in the future, Christ will return after the millennium. And again, you'll see those, that confluence of events there. Resurrection of believers, resurrection of unbelievers. So you've got the general, Christ returns, general res- resurrection of believers and unbelievers, the judgment, and the new heavens and the new earth. Those four things that you expect to see at the return of Christ. And then we go right into the eternal state. This is my view. This is the view. Now, now when I said earlier that this is like a flavor of post-millennialism, here's why I say that. Because the term ah-millennialism is a relatively recent vintage term. In my study, I couldn't find that it was used before the 20th century. So up until the 20th century, when the term ah-millennialism was coined, you had people who were probably just post-millennialists. And they were probably post-millennialists in an amillennial way. But they, just, they weren't called amillennial because that term wasn't coined. Now, I don't know who coined the term. I don't know if it was our critics or our supporters. But it was, in a sense, it was used in a way to sort of separate us from those who hold this sort of triumphalistic form of post-millennialism. And this is one of the things that the post-millennials will kind of do. And I think here, too, they're being a little dishonest. Maybe not intentionally so. But they'll look back in the history of theology and they'll say, look, so-and-so was post-millennial. This famous theologian was post-millennial. That famous theologian was post-millennial. You amillennials have it wrong. To which we say, yeah, but this guy and this guy and this guy all lived and... and and did their teaching before the, there was even a term, ah, millennial. You have to go and examine their teachings on the, on the end times to see if they held this sort of overly triumphalistic form of post-mill, or if they were just sort of the normal run-of-the-day post-mill that eventually ended up becoming called ah, millennial. And the reason, I guess, because we deny, in a sense, this golden age period of time called the millennial in their view. So anyway, there you have it. Those are the four views. Again, I used to be dispensational pre-mill. I am now ah-mill. And you have been getting it, whether you knew it or not, the ah-mill interpretation of Revelation this entire time. So you, if, if you say, well, I agree with you, Pastor, then you're probably ah-mill. If you're like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about then you're probably not all male and you disagree with me. But again, 
humility and charity. We need to keep these two in mind when we're talking about this. Now, as we head into this passage, as I said, we're, this is the thousand-year reign. It's really broken up into three sections. Four if you count the great white throne judgment, but I didn't include it in our passage uh, this evening. But um, you're going to see in the first three verses, Satan is bound. And then in, the, in verses 4 through 6, you're going to see how the saints reign with Christ for a thousand years. And we'll talk about that. And then in verses 7 through 10, you see the rebellion, the crushing of the rebellion at the end of the millennium. And we'll talk about that. Now, like I said before, we'll probably only get through the first three verses. Um, but, you know, we'll just get cracking. And then next, next time... Uh, in two weeks, we'll, we'll finish this. But anyway, so the first point there on your handout in the thousand-year reign is the binding of Satan. Look at verses 1 through 3, please. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So like John does in many of his visions, when he begins the vision, he begins by saying, Then I saw. Then I saw. A very familiar opening for John. Then I saw this. Then I saw that. And seeing an angel coming down from heaven, that too is... Not an unusual thing. We've seen that in chapter 18. After these things, I saw an angel, another angel coming down from heaven. We see it in chapter 10. In chapter 10, verse 1, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven. So this idea of seeing an angel coming down from heaven is not unusual. John sees it. But what is unusual what is maybe just different in this passage than in others, is that this angel is coming out of heaven with stuff. He's got stuff in his hand. Now, of course, heaven, as we've been saying all along, of course, heaven is where God dwells. Heaven is God's throne room. Heaven is where the temple is, the true temple. Heaven is where the holy angels worship God around the throne. Heaven is where... Uh, the Ark of the Covenant is. We saw that in, 11, in chapter 11. The, the heavens opened and we saw the Ark of the Covenant. Heaven is God's abode. It is the invisible realm. It is where God resides during this period of time, during the old heavens and the old earth. God is there in heaven and an angel comes forth out of heaven. So he's coming from, from the place where God is, with, presumably with the authority of God, because the angels are God's messengers. They are His servants. They carry out His will. So this angel comes out and he's got stuff, like we said. He's got a key and he's got a chain. He's got the key to the bottomless pit and he's got a chain. What does the key do? Key opens things or locks things. What does the chain do? It binds things. So you kind of see where I'm going with this, right? So he's got a key and he's got a pit, or a chain, a chain. Now, we saw something like this before in Revelation chapter 9. Turn over there, please. Chapter 9, verse 1, the fifth trumpet is sounded. When the fifth trumpet sounds, I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. To him was given a key to the bottomless pit. Now, when we looked at Revelation chapter 9 in the past, we saw that this was a star falling, and we saw stars falling all over the place. But we noted that this star was personal, because you see there in verse 1, it says, to him was given the key. So here you have an angel. Angels are often referred to as, uh, are sometimes seen as um, uh, celestial objects, like stars in the sky. So you've got an angel here, and a key is given to him. And in, the, in chapter 20, we see an angel coming down with a key. Now, when we were looking at Revelation chapter 9 back in the day, we were wondering, we asked the question, is this a holy angel or is this 
a fallen angel or is this the fallen angel, Satan? And we, we argued and came on the conclusion, settled on the conclusion that this was Satan. That this is Satan being cast out of heaven with the key in order to unleash the demonic hordes as a judgment on the earth. So God is sending Satan down. Because we see here he's fallen from heaven, cast out from heaven. And he falls to the earth. And he's got the key to the bottomless pit and then he opens that. And he is the, he is the ruler of the bottomless pit. He is the angel of the bottomless pit. In verse 11, whose name was Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon, the destroyer. So here Satan is cast out of heaven with a key. You might be thinking, why does he have a key to his own prison? It's not the key to his own prison. He's got the key to open up the pit where the demons are, so the demons are unleashed as a judgment on those who dwell on the earth. Here, in Revelation chapter 20, this is an angel coming out of heaven with the key in his hand in order to lock Satan. So differences there. Now, so verse 2. So this angel, who must be pretty mighty, because he grabs a hold of the dragon. And in case you don't know who the dragon is, it's that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. So this angel grabs the dragon, binds him with the chain for a thousand years. And in verse 3, he is cast into the bottomless pit. The pit is shut up on him. A seal is set on him. The key locks it, and he is there in the bottomless pit so that he should not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So here you have the binding of Satan. And here's where you're going to get the first major difference between the millennial views and the binding of Satan. Because according to your millennial views there again, Let's take a look at the first two. In the first two, the both premillennial views, when Christ returns, that is the Revelation 19 return, in which uh, Jesus slays all of those who are on the earth, and they are all cast into the lake of fire. And then the millennium period begins. So the binding of Satan during the millennium here, this is a total binding. He is bound. He is not able to do anything. He is completely curtailed, completely prohibited from doing anything during the millennium. He's bound, 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 bound. In the post-millennial view, view number three, Satan is bound in a large way, but not totally, in order that the gospel can go forth. Okay? He is bound in order that the gospel can go forth. That's why you see there, he is bound for a particular reason. So that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years is over. Satan is bound in order to not deceive. Satan can do other things, but he cannot deceive. Now, specifically, look at verse uh, 8, 7, really, of chapter 20. When the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are at the four corners of the earth and gather them together. So part of this binding is to prevent Satan from gathering the forces up for Armageddon, the last battle. So Satan is bound so he cannot deceive the nations and rally them together against God's people. Because that's what we see he does in each uh, version of the last battle. In chapter 16, chapter 19, Satan, the kings of the earth, are gathered to the last battle. And in fact, in chapter uh, 14, with the, um, sorry, chapter 16, when the sixth bowl is dried up, or used, and the Euphrates River is dried up, 
you see the serpent, the dragon I should say, and the false prophet, and the beast, and, and unclean spirits come out of their mouths. These frogs coming out of their mouths. And they go and they deceive the whole world. Verse 14 of chapter 16. They are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So Satan is bound until that point in time. Until that point in time, he cannot deceive the nations and gather them together for battle. But it's also important to know here, if you look, that word nations in chapter 20, verse 3 there, so he should deceive the nations. That is the word in Greek, ethne, ethnos, which we get ethnic, nations, but it also is used of the word Gentiles. So whenever you see in the New Testament the word Gentiles or the word nations, it's the word ethne. It just depends on the context on which uh, definition you use. But Satan is bound up so that he cannot deceive the Gentiles. He cannot deceive the ethne. Flip over to, um, again, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. We looked at it a little bit earlier. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. Again, this is after Jesus is tempted. He's been baptized in chapter 3. He's out in the wilderness being tempted in chapter 4, the beginning part. But in chapter 4, verse 12, we read this. Now when Jesus heard that John, that is the John the Baptist, had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. Uh, ancient uh, allotments for the Jewish people up in the northern part of the Promised Land. Verse 14, that it might be fulfilled. So here, this is all what Matthew is about, fulfilling a prophecy. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region, the shadow of death, light has dawned. The coming of Jesus into the world is so that the light now goes out to the nations. The light goes out to the nations so they are no longer deceived. Satan is bound so the nations can no longer be deceived and the light of the Gospel goes forth. Isaiah 49 Another passage you can turn to. Chapter 49, verse 6. This is one of the servant songs of Isaiah. And he says of his servant, that's Jesus. Indeed, he says, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So think of it this way. The entire Old Testament period was one in which the people of God was constrained primarily to the nation of Israel. Now you had Gentiles that came in, uh, proselytes, God-fearers who who followed. uh, Not everyone who came out of Egypt was a Jew. You had some God-fearers that came with them. But the vast majority of the people of God were Jews, as, you would, as would be expected, because God called Abraham out and, and, and he was going to make him a nation. And then when his grandson Jacob is born, you've got the 12 sons that become the patriarchs of the 12 tribes. And then from there, that nation grows into a large group of people. The people of God primarily constrained within the nation of Israel. Then when Jesus comes, you have an expansion of the people of God to the, to the nations. The, the marching orders of the church and the Great Commission is to what? Go to the nations and make disciples. Go into all the world. Make disciples of all people. Baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you until the end of the age. The 
the, the, the call for the churches to go out to the nations. And they can do so. Why? Because Satan is bound. Satan is bound. He cannot deceive the nations any longer. He is bound and the Gospel can go forth. And I believe that is the proper view. That the binding of Satan is such that he can no longer deceive the nations so that the Gospel can go forth and bring many converts. The church is growing during the millennium period. Jesus says of the kingdom that it is like a piece of leaven that you work into a lump of dough and it spreads throughout all of it. It is like a mustard seed that you plant. It becomes a great tree in which the birds of the air can nest. So you have the binding of Satan so that he cannot deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are over. So during this period of the thousand years, and again, just to reiterate the point and to strengthen that point, in Revelation chapter 12, and the vision in Revelation chapter 12, which is 12, 13, and 14, is very similar in a way to Revelation chapter 20 because both these visions look at the entire church age from a sort of like a panoramic view. But just to strengthen my point that the binding of Satan is what happened when Jesus came into the world. Look at Revelation chapter 12. This is the vision of the woman, the child, and the dragon. Uh, Verse 3, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, that's Satan, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them into the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, the people of God, Israel, who was ready to give birth to devour her child, Jesus, as as, as soon as it was born. So the woman bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, that is Jesus, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So there in that one verse you have the entire life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. In one verse, the child comes into this world, he is, a, he is born a king, he is caught up into heaven, his ascension and he is now at the right hand of, the, of God the Father Almighty, reigning and ruling with authority. And then in verse 7, as the child is caught up to heaven, verse 7, war breaks out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He's cast out of heaven. Now, he's bound. See, the casting out of heaven is, is, is equivalent to the binding. Jesus has achieved a victory. Satan is he's bound. He is, he is no longer able to do what he was doing before, which was deceiving the nations and keeping them in darkness. Because now with Christ coming and Satan bound, the light can go forth. Jesus is the light of the world, and we are lights of the world shining the light of Jesus into the world. And his activity is curtailed. But his activity is not nil, like in the pre-mill versions. He is still a roaring lion. He still has a veil over the unbelievers so they cannot see the the glory of the Gospel. He is still here as, as the angel says, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because the devil has come down in great wrath for he knows his time is short. When he is cast out of heaven, when he is bound, he knows his time is short. So there you have the binding of the dragon, the serpent of old. That's just to let you know, hey, this is the guy who was there at the very beginning. This crafty, sneaky serpent who tricked Eve. He's also um, the devil, Diabolos, the slanderer, the one who slanders, uh, who slanders us before the throne but is unable to do that now because he's been cast out. And he's Satan, the adversary. He is all these things. Satan wears many faces, many hats. He is the hideous, ugly, fearful dragon 
the sly, sneaky serpent. He is a slanderer and an adversary. But during this period of time, the church age, he is bound. He is bound so that the church can go forth, the gospel can go forth in great power. Many souls can be won. The church is protected during this period of time. We see this in Revelation chapter 11 where we are in this period of time as the two witnesses witnessing with great power and authority and, and, and for that 42-month period, uh, we are untouchable in a sense as a, as a whole, as an entity. The church is protected and will witness. Until that time is over, then the church will be overcome. That's why I don't believe in a triumphalistic view of the millennium. But here we have it. The binding of Satan, and as I said, as I feared, this is where we'll have to stop. Uh, in two weeks' time, Lord willing, we will consider the rest of these verses, uh, verses 4 through 10. But just as a wrap-up, this, this should give us cause for great joy and great activity. Because again, Satan is bound. He's no longer able to deceive. The gospel can go forth. You can go out and share the gospel with great power and great authority because Satan cannot deceive the nations any longer. Satan is, he is chained. He is bound. He cannot, um, he cannot stop the gospel going forth. He cannot keep the nations in great darkness. And that should fuel our, our, our efforts. That should fuel our witnessing, our evangelism, our, our good works. Knowing that when we go forth, we will, you know, we will bear fruit. We will bear fruit. So we'll leave it at that. Again, in two weeks' time, Lord willing, we'll finish the passage. So again, thank you.